Hey, welcome to Mojo Moments, your podcast to get mojo. On today's podcast, we have Duncan McHugh. He's host of CBC Radio 1's Cross Country Checkup. He's a journalist. We hear him often and see him often on CBC's The National. He is a member of the Chippewas of Georgina Island First Nation. Currently, he is on sabbatical, lucky bastard, at the University of Toronto, Massey College. He's doing a Massey Fellowship. And, oh yeah, we went to university in Halifax together not too long ago, well, a long time ago, but we're not going to get into that, at King's College. And he was kind of like one of the smartest, coolest, and down-to-earth cats on campus. So we are so lucky to have Duncan today on Mojo Moments. Duncan, welcome to uh, Mojo Moments. Uh, it's so good to be here and, and uh, of course, to see you again because we, we know each other going way back. Yeah, we did. Actually, I was thinking about the last time I saw you and I'm going to say it was King's College Commencement or with, as they called it, the Insenia, mm. uh, for those of you who speak Greek. And I think we're, you know, on stage and you're picking up a bunch of prizes. I wasn't, but you were. Is that... Is that a good memory? Well, so so you may have a mistaken memory because I actually skipped uh, Insignia. What do you mean? Back in the day, I, I did I did not go, and much to my shock, I'll try try to be humble about this, but but I, I much to my shock, I was invited back to King's uh, over twenty years later to receive an honorary doctorate. Uh, and I had to reveal to the graduating students at King's in that year that this was the first King's and Senior that I'd ever been to because I had skipped my own. Uh, and and I'm not proud of it. You know, I, I, I realized uh, many years later after uh, being a professor at, at the University of British Columbia that there are very few signposts in our lives anymore in, in Western society where we mark passages, you know, where the community gathers to, to, to say you have reached a significant achievement in your life that, you know, and I've, I realized after going to graduating ceremonies for my students at UBC, that this is a really, really important moment. And even though, you know, the student themselves may be focused on, okay, I got to get a job or I got to go do my, you know, uh, find a place to live or, or focused on what's coming in the future. Uh, it's so important for the parents and uh, grandparents and uh, uh, partners and lovers and children and all of the community that helped get this student through. Uh, so, so I actually didn't go to my insignia back in, 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 in the day. Uh, and, and I, uh, I was glad that I could. And you went back and got your, your honorary doctorate. Well, yes. maybe I should have skipped it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the big question I have, like, were you like in downtown Halifax hanging out at the seahorse or had you left Halifax already? Yeah, I'd already left Halifax. I was, uh, I was working with a show for CBC television actually. And so I was already, uh, called road oh, movies wow. and I was traveling the country with a video. Camera. I remember you doing that. Yeah. 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 Well, that's a pretty legitimate reason yeah. not to be there. So, so, well, anyway, there's my memory. Um, uh, <laughs> that says a lot, my age. <laughs> so our whole show here is about Mojo and this kind of seems like a goofy thing, but actually, uh, it's born from a real place. Last year in 2019, 
started my agency, creative agency here, Cloudraker, uh, 19 years before. And, uh, and it's an entrepreneurial journey. And, and I get to work with great people. And, you know, but one of the things that I realized last year, I was, I was, I kind of hit a wall and I was like, ah, and I was like, but the only thing really I have to bring to the team is mojo. <laughs> and so I started talking to different people, all these different walks of life. And, and, and what happened in the beginning of this year in 2020, everyone was like, we got to do a podcast. Like it's time we do a podcast. And we're like, what do we do it about? And, and, and we're like, let's do it about mojo. Like, where do people get their inspiration? How do they stay inspired? How do they share that inspiration? And so that's what the show became. And then this little thing happened, uh, you might have heard of COVID. Mm. <laughs> and so we put a little pause. We're like, ah, oh, yeah, it's maybe not the right timing. And then we're like, actually, this is the perfect time. This is the perfect time. Is there any perfect timing to do is now? And so that's why we started this whole thing. So I don't know about you. Like, I don't know how you're, how, how are you surviving this COVIDness and how are you doing? Like, uh, so interestingly, uh, you know, being a journalist uh, in the, uh, in the first months of the pandemic, I was working incredibly hard. <laughs> you know, people wanted information and trustworthy information and were trying to figure out what was going on. You know, how, uh, you know, what was the virus? How do I, you know, how can I catch it? Uh, what, what, is, what is safe? What is not safe? Uh, what does this mean for my pocketbook? What does this mean for my kids in school? Everybody desperately wanted information and so they were turning to, to to journalism and 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 reliable trustworthy journalism for answers so the first couple of months uh, of the pandemic uh, were incredibly busy for me um, and and all, all journalists uh, it was difficult frankly because uh, within a week most of us were working from home like people in, in all sectors, yeah. uh, but that's not easy to do as a broadcast journalist. Uh, so, you know, not only did we have to shift our work model, but then we, we, there were incredible demands upon, upon our output as well. So it was incredibly stressful. And my son was at home, uh, you know, uh, no longer going to school and, and et cetera, et cetera. So the first couple of months were incredibly stressful and I was worked off my feet, uh, and, and really didn't have time to even pause. Then an interesting thing happened. Uh, as the pandemic wore on, people started to tune out news. They heard so much about COVID that they were like, okay, this is, this is happening. This is real. And it's time to hibernate. And I don't want to hear all that discouraging and, and uh, frankly, often depressing uh, information. And so we slowed down. Uh, in terms of our our, uh, our our pandemic news output, if you will, and the news pace went back to normal. So when I finally got to to hit that pause, uh, you know, roughly around May, I was tired. Uh, I, I was tired and and realized, oh yes, there's a pandemic going on, and and it's been impacting me personally as well. And I'm not getting my daily bike ride to work any longer. Uh, I did start to consume perhaps a little bit uh, more than than uh, the usual, you know, wine with dinner. 
put on a few COVID pounds. You know, all there were a lot of changes that happened to me personally that I finally took a breath and and went, wow, uh, better focus on that if if you're because I need to feel well, you know, in my in my own health, balanced if I'm going to do a good job as a journalist and, and it was hard to do in the first, in the first, and it still is, it still is. I mean, I think everybody is, is, is still dealing with how do you stay healthy when we can't really go outdoors and, and socialize the way that we're accustomed to when we can't exercise, uh, when we can't, you know, visit with people as well. Social health is, is a real, real challenge. I went the other way in terms of like, I, I went, towards exercise like running because i was just like i don't know how this all plays out Mm -hmm. i remember the first few weeks like i'm thinking of all the economic consequences across the team and i just run i felt like forrest gump Mm -hmm. (laughs) like Mm -hmm. literally like running and and to the point now and i was telling mark yesterday so he's like dude you seem down i was like because i didn't run man like now it's like if i don't run Mm -hmm. i just get this the this negative energy just seeps in very quickly you know so so i am very physically active and and that's really important you talk about mojo i've I've realized over the years that that, that the physical activity is a huge part of of maintaining mojo i play hockey and i cycle uh, and i go to the gym those are kind of my three big big things and all of a sudden going to the gym wasn't happening uh cycling to work my daily as i said my, my daily cycle to work was gone and hockey uh, you know dried up so so all of those things uh, left me trying to figure out how i was going to to reinvent my <laughs> exercise regimen and yeah, i'm yeah. still working at that one of the things i read that you are now correct me if I'm wrong but you're you're doing a fellowship right i am yes so at massey college massey college like, first of all congratulations thank you uh but what does that mean? It's timely that you're asking me these questions about Mojo because it's exactly what I'm doing right now. I'm I'm kind of trying to recapture and rekindle Mojo. Uh, so a fellowship uh, in, in a journalism context uh, essentially means a sabbatical uh, associated with a university. So I have been on another fellowship before at Stanford University in California. And uh, in a journalism context, that means that you get to take as many courses as you wish uh, at the university that is sponsoring the fellowship, in in my case, U of T right now. Um, You become a student again. I'm not getting graded or marked. I'm auditing the courses. And then there's a series of of, uh, kind of lectures uh, that that your group, your cohort uh, engages in weekly about journalism, about the state of journalism. So everyone you're with are journalists? Yes, we're all journalists. Okay, yeah. okay. So we, we meet once a week and, and talk about journalism or public policy issues and things like that. So, But it's essentially a sabbatical. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're out of the newsroom. You don't have to file new daily news. You don't have to work on any journalism projects. You get a stipend, and, uh, and, and it's a way to, to, to recharge and, uh, and, and work on projects. Do you, get to, do you get to live on campus and... Or, yes, you can. You can. Uh, in, in this like, instance, see you later, family. I'm out. This year at the Massey uh, Fellowship, there are uh, there's a journalist from uh, Ghana. Uh, there's a journalist from uh, there's two journalists from uh, Myanmar, uh, one from Alberta, uh, and and uh, so they're on campus. A couple of them are on campus. Yes. And you you decide to stay home and not? Yeah. No, I have an stuff. apartment in Toronto, so there's no need for me to be to be in residence. <laughs> See you later, family. Yes. I'm out of here.
So um, the other question I have about that is, do you have to publish like a thesis or anything around this, or you're just sponging and... Uh... Yeah, the, the theory is, although they're, they're, the, the Stanford Fellowship that I was on, uh, the John S. Knight Fellowship, um, they asked us to work on a project uh, that we pitched to them uh, about how to save journalism, essentially. Um, not No small task. Uh, so uh, we were working on a project as well as taking some coursework. Uh, the Massey Fellowship doesn't have that expectation, but I certainly have some goals for the year in terms of, of what I'm trying to do. Uh, I'm working on a, a journalism textbook, which I have long wanted to write uh, about reporting in Indigenous communities, which is kind of my area of specialty. Uh, and really... The main reason that I that I decided to go on the fellowship is that I, I really want to become uh, a better speaker of my, my native language, which is Anishinaabe Moon. I'm, I'm Anishinaabe by heritage, and uh, and I don't speak my native language, uh, which is not an unusual thing for, for Indigenous folks in this country, unfortunately. And so I, I probably don't need to, to tell you or your listeners uh, about the history of residential schools and, and the loss of, of Indigenous yeah, yeah. languages in this country. But my grandparents were fluent Anishinaabe Moan speakers, and then within one generation, the language is lost. It's long been the hole in my heart uh, not speaking uh, the language. And uh, three years ago, I started taking evening classes at the Friendship Centre in Toronto uh, to start to learn the language. I, I showed up and I knew four words of Anishinaabe one that my, my grandparents used to speak. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, but, but I had kind of plateaued thing. Like I had uh, learning a language at, at, in your late 40s. Uh, my God, like it's, it's just it's so hard. It's and, so and difficult. I and doing it in a classroom at night, like it's after work and, and, yeah. you know, and me being in a, in a business where I'm traveling around the country and yeah. Going to a language class at night. Yeah. Once so or whatever. Well, I really had plateaued and I wasn't advancing. Yeah. Uh, and I said, the only way I'm going to get a little bit better at this language is if I actually take some time to, to focus on, on learning the language. And so that's what I'm trying to do this year. I find that really interesting. And actually, um, uh, I, uh, your email address, mm -hmm. indigenous journalist at, and I won't complete that. Yeah, indigenous indigenous reporting at. Yeah, yeah, reporting. Sorry, yeah. you know that minimalist. Like it gets right to the heart. I think of you, like first indigenous yeah. and reporting, yeah. like two things that are key to your life. Yes. Did you just you were like, ah, oh, shit? I need an email address, and you did that, or did you actually consciously go that? Is what? No, uh, so uh, I'm I'm trying not to use my CBC email address when I when I'm on the fellowship because I don't want to be thinking about work. Actually, yeah, I, yeah, I, I'm yeah. trying to, to lay work so, to rest. Uh, yeah, and, and as as difficult as that can be when there are all kinds of news events going on, um, and the indigenous uh, reporting <laughs> email address uh, as a result of the fellowship that I was on over a decade ago at Stanford. Uh, I created a website, uh, a resource for journalists who are reporting in Indigenous communities. It was a, a toolkit, a guidebook. It was something that that a lot of people uh, said was needed for for non-Indigenous journalists who were venturing into to First Nation communities to do journalism. And so I created that website. And Indigenous reporting is is the 
the email kind of tag that I that I, I generated at that time for the website. I love the minimalism and dr- the bluntness. This is it. <laughs> yep. What is, so roots are obviously important to you. Like, but how do you define your roots? I do identify as an Ishinaabe. Uh, that 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 I, and I always have. Uh, I although I am uh, you know by uh, DNA or blood, I'm 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 half breed. If you can use that that term, uh, I can use that uh, term. You uh, can use that yeah, term. You don't don't you use that term? Uh, yeah. But but uh, <laughs> you know. So my my dad is an Ishinaabe. Uh, my mother is from the Ottawa Valley. Uh, blonde blonde hair and blue eyes. She's uh, of Scottish and German stock. Uh, uh, and and so, but I do. I have always identified uh, strongly as an Ishinaabe, uh, simply because that's how I was raised by both my parents. Uh, although I, you know, I am learning more about the Scottish side of my of my of my heritage as well. It's an interesting question about why I identify more strongly with 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 the Anishinaabe side of the family. My father was very conscious of it. Uh, he was a, a teacher of Native studies, and I think my mother uh, recognized, you know, when they married in the in the late '60s, uh, mixed race uh, marriages and relationships were were very much taboo, and she, uh, they both, uh, you know, experienced what I can only call uh, as racism from within. In fact, my mother's own family uh, about about their their union and so I think she understood the racism that, that my father faced and my father's side of the family and was determined to to try to make sure that I would be proud of who I was mm-hmm. as an indigenous boy but it's interesting because in a different way but my I'm married to a French Canadian mm-hmm. woman so and we're raising our kids as French and English bilingual you know, and, and and it's like, where's that line? Like, you know, do they always feel dual, or do they gravitate to one side or the other? You know, and, it's, and uh, uh, duality is is something that I really wrestled with as a teenager. Uh, you know, trying to figure out who I was, and that, and and all teenagers struggle with their identity. That's that's part of of the awful part of being a teenager. Yeah, you know, yeah. is is trying to figure out who you are. Uh, but it's it was compounded for me by being uh, mixed race, um, and 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 people still uh, have a hard time classifying mixed race folks. You know uh, what what box do you fit in? You know th- th- that is still a struggle. And again, it's 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 that much more difficult for young Indigenous uh, folks growing up in this country when you're bombarded with so many um, popular media. Uh, perceptions of what an Indian should look like and how an Indian acts. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting because Anishinaabe, uh, at least mm. what I read, translates to, I think maybe this is wrong, but it's from the interwebs. Mm. Uh, people from whence lowered uh, or or the good humans. It was Yeah, so there, there are a couple of different uh, d- interpretations of where the word came from. The the one that, that fits for me is, is the good people. So Nishian. Uh, is is the word for that's good and Anishinaabe is is simply the the good people. I just find that so poetic and good. So my clan, Scottish clan, called there were part of the Campbells. So I was like, oh, I wonder if we have anything that's kind of cool like that. 
I looked it up, and it's crooked mouth. I was like, crooked mouth. That sucks. <laughs> so you're mentioning your teen years, finding you know the your identity, and and uh, I, I'm so freaking embarrassed. I didn't realize you'd written a book. Mm-hmm. I, I now know. I've ordered it. Great. Okay. Because I actually find it really interesting. You know, you're your 17 year old going on this adventure in northern Quebec with a Cree family. Uh, the book's name for everyone, The Shoe Boy, A Trapline Memoir. By the way, I love the title. A little side, did you actually just land on the title or was it always there? No, so the title, so it's it's about five months that I spent on a trapline with a, with an old Cree trapper and his family uh, up in, in, in Quebec in, in uh, or uh, as the Cree would call it, Iyo-Itchi, which is uh, Cree, Cree land. And uh, Robbie Matthew Sr., who was the, the, the trapper, he called me. He called me the shoe boy. Uh, because I was a terrible hunter. I was a terrible hunter, and uh, in terms of the pecking order uh, in a hunting camp, I fell at the bottom. <laughs> and uh, he he used that term. He said he, he called me the shoe boy on, on multiple occasions. I never really asked him what it meant, but I think it came from residential school, and I think it was kind of a, a term that they used for the kids that had to clean up, basically, which is what I ended up doing. I ended up doing a lot of sweeping and washing dishes and, and carrying water. Uh, although he did teach me a thing or two about trapping and fishing. This Robbie Matthew Sr. Uh, took you under his wing, right? And, and mm-hmm. he was to teach you hunting and trapping, which is obviously cool skills. Mm-hmm. But what, what else like stands out for you most being with this mentor, if I, I'll, I'll say? Or... So the book is, is actually uh, was me trying to figure out what – he taught me because I, I recognized that he was an important mentor in my life, but what was that experience? And just to, I mean, this was the year before I went to Kings actually thing that, that I, that I went, I took a year off in between high school uh, and you and university and, and spent this kind of six month period with uh, out on the land. And he taught me so many things that I ended up having to write a book about it and, and unpack all, all of these complex feelings that I, that I was having. But, on the one hand, yes, he, he did. He taught me to recognize where rabbits were running and, and, and how to set a snare, or more specifically, his sons did. Um, you know, he taught me how to, to set fish nets. He taught me how to honor a bear after we had shot and killed a bear, uh, how to, to set a beaver trap, all of these, these very practical skills. But there was so much more uh, that he, that through osmosis, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like a classroom setting of any any type. Uh, that's that's not a, a traditional in, uh, indigenous teaching style. Mm-hmm. It's it's very much a, a experiential learning. Go out and make mistakes. Uh, you know, you'll learn that way. So he he taught me about how he, uh, as a hunter and a trapper, viewed the land and his relationship with the land and and the animals and his relationship with the animals, and that was profound to me because. So much of indigenous culture became very much clearer to me when I saw the way that he operated on the land. Yeah. You know, the, the, the reality for most indigenous people is, is, is that we don't live a sustenance lifestyle anymore. There are a small handful of people who do, and, and, uh, and there are many indigenous people who uh, will connect with the land uh, on weekends or uh, you know, over over the summer or particular, uh, you know, when the salmon are running or when the char are running or when the geese are flying or whatever the, the animals may be. 
but not not many people live a sustenance lifestyle anymore uh, based on hunting and gathering. Uh, so to be able to do that showed me that connection to the land and how it expressed itself in Indigenous culture through our honour and respect of elders, for example, uh, through ideas like reciprocity, you know, it, it, which is a fancy way of saying giving back. You know, that's, a, that's an incredibly important value in, in Indigenous cultures. When I saw Robbie on the land and his relationship with the animals, I began to understand really viscerally why we have such, a, 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 why we, why giving back uh, is such a, a, an important contemporary value to, to all Indigenous folks. So it really made the roots of my heritage a lot more clear to be out on the land and to understand why the land continues to be such, such an important force within, within Indigenous life in Canada, even if we live in the heart of downtown Toronto. Do you think the fact that you weren't necessarily with your tribe and you were with another, with, with the Cree, gave you a, a better perspective on that? Maybe better is the wrong word, but it took away, oh, I'm trying to be connected to my own community i'm i'm now even more immersed in something new or um the relationship between the the cree and the and the nishinaabe has always been a fairly close mm. one in the sense that uh, the best way i could describe it is they're a bit like the the spanish and the portuguese okay. you know like like neighbors who who are similar and 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 have similar heritage elements yeah, yeah similar heritage but but have some distinct differences yeah. The language is is similar but but different. Yeah. Uh, so the teachings of of the Cree in northern Quebec uh, are not unlike what I would experience with hunters, Anishinaabe hunters in northern Ontario, for example. Mm-hmm. They sometimes say it's 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 difficult to be a prophet in your own land, uh, you know, uh, and, and that it helps to to lead. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's like the experience of travel. When you travel, you almost sure. better understand where you're from by being away. Absolutely. And so and so in that <laughs> in that regard, you know, it was kind of a very Canadian, uh, a very indigenous virgin uh, version of a buildings Roman, yeah. you know, like like it was, you know, I, I went away to, to come back to understand myself. Well, I did my sabbatical year or my leap year between uh, high school and, and Kings and I but I went to India, you know, like, totally different vibe, you know. Just to, to circle back, you, you asked me about Mojo, you asked me about the Massey Fellowship, uh, you're asking me now about this year off that I took in between high school. I have encountered over the course of my life a number uh, of periods where I have simply uh, taken a year off. I, I've done it, I did it between high school, I did it between uh, undergrad and law school, uh, I did it uh, when I went off to Stanford at about the 10-year mark of my career, and I'm doing it now again at about the 20-year mark of my career. And I think it's incredibly important to do uh, for people to just get off the uh, treadmill, if you will, of their careers and, and, and to reinvigorate themselves in, in whatever way uh, that, that that, I mean, for me, that has often been uh, in, in academia, uh, but it's not always easy to do, you know, to, to, to take a whole year off, especially as you get older. Uh, when you have financial responsibilities, yeah. when you have responsibilities to family, when you have a mortgage or whatever it may be, it's it can be very difficult to take time off to do something uh, that you're passionate about. 
but it's so essential. It, it's so essential in terms of rekindling that fire. Uh, it's so essential to rest. P- people make fun of me for this, but but you know what I have noticed in in the two journalism sabbaticals that I've taken is that the first month the the whole group is is exhausted. And I think it has to do with with simply because journalists are so used to the pace, a fast paced uh, lifestyle where news is constantly in this cycle and we're running on adrenaline all the time. When you take that adrenaline out of our bodies and say, okay, you don't need to do anything, you just kind of crash. I mean, it's you just go blah. And and people experience this when they go on holidays. Right. Like when you go on holidays for for a week, you know, it's a nice little break. It's not enough time. Uh, but it's not enough time. Everybody always says that. Oh, it wasn't enough time. You know, uh, when you go on holidays for two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, for those who are lucky enough to do that kind of thing, then you you begin to to really relax. You know, you, you can you can uh, after that first week, you can really slow down a yeah. little bit. And, and I just I just think it's so important to remove yourself from whatever your career may be in order to get better at that career uh, once you once you return to it, if you decide to return to it. Well, don't give my colleagues any ideas here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's all good. It's all good. But I will give your colleagues some ideas because I think that, that like I Google, for example, I, I have when I was at Stanford. Uh, Google allows their uh, their employees. I, I believe it's as, as much as twenty percent of their of their working uh, schedule time to work on passion projects. Yeah, they've clawed that back. By the way, they've okay, lost well, there you go, their there you mojo go. on that front. And, and so maybe maybe it was working good on paper, but not well, no, I don't know why they did. I don't know what happened. But they, yes, you're right. They were doing that. But but, but yeah, there's that, something to that, right? Like like I think to have more productive employees, you you need to uh, allow them to explore their passions, and that 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 can benefit a company in a way that that perhaps may not be immediately obvious to the to the fellow who's paying the paying. I, the I totally agree. It's how do you economically do it? But I think the the intention it's, it's so bang on, like. Yeah, the problem is, I you know, I've had my own company here, but I've dreamt of taking that year off. And the closest I've come to it, and this is the the the, the good side of, of the pandemic, wasn't time off, but change of context. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'm fortunate to have a, a country house. And in March, my kids were sent home to do homeschooling. They, they you know, via, you know, through through Google Classroom. And so we're like, well, why be in the city? We go to our country house. We actually have internet that works pretty decently there. And just changing context till essentially when they had to go back to school in September was brilliant. Even though I was still working, working very differently, it was like a type of sabbatical. So it wasn't the dream sabbatical, but it was definitely a change of context. And I do believe, you know, I think that, you know, we're talking earlier about going on trips sometimes, that change of context helps us all even if it doesn't have the same depth of... Uh, I'll give you another example uh, in an indigenous context of how I, how I keep my, my mojo. Uh, ceremony is really important to me, and, uh, and, and in particular sweat lodges. Yeah. And, 
and one of the things uh, that you realize when you start to participate in a in a circle in a in a lodge and and become uh, part of that circle is that sweat lodges take an incredible amount of time. Like like you you essentially rebuild the lodge every time that you go out and do that uh, that ceremony. And you know if I commit to doing a, a sweat lodge. I'm gone for a day, like, like I'm out for a day. It's, it's, it's not like going to church, you know, where, where you show up between 11 and 12 and, and say your prayers and, and, and thanks very much, pastor. Off I go. Uh, you know, the, the building process of, of building a sweat lodge takes, takes, and, and then cleaning up afterwards, including the ceremony, it essentially takes a whole day. And I do think that there's, there's something to that, that the process itself is is slowing you down it's it's forcing you to to interact with the people that you're you're engaging in the ceremony with uh aside from the 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 two or three hours that you may be in the lodge itself and i think that there's there's something to that teaching that there's a slowness can assist us in terms of of finding balance and um particularly in, in, in this kind of fast-paced life we lead in 2020. So I'm going to riff on that. You know, I have friends uh, who, they used to live here in Montreal, they were neighbors, and they moved uh, to, back to Israel, live in Tel Aviv, very practicing, uh, nor do orthodox, but very committed to their faith. And Shabbat it happens in their household. And they're just describing it, just mean they unplug everything <laughs> they turn off and they actually know their neighbors because they can't drive anywhere so they actually go outside and hang out with their neighborhood and i was like that's pretty freaking genius <laughs> actually mm-hmm. it's not a sweat lodge but it has that whole connotation of of changing that pattern and really forcing a uh, at least once a week a change up uh, which I think is really, you know, when we're talking about Mojo, I think there's a lot to be said about that, you know, trying to to reboot that way. And mm-hmm. Hey, earlier I had a flash, you know, when you are talking about being uh, up north. Uh, so back to your book here. I do a little bit of, in French-Canadian, we say coquelin. Do you know that expression? No, That's I don't. the greatest term ever. From rooster to donkey. So it's not as linear. You, your conversation goes back and okay. forth. <laughs> From roosters to donkeys. Yeah, it's a name of a good of a band, maybe. Anyway. Yeah, uh, anyway. Uh, sorry, I'm always thinking of band names. But years ago, or about five years ago, I had the opportunity. A friend of mine invited me to go caribou hunting up mm. north. We went out in January, sort of late Jan. And we flew into Radisson or Radisson to the airport there. Okay, yeah. And uh, long, uh, I could be a very long story. I'll give you the short version. Uh, so when we arrived there, we weren't supposed to go there. We were actually supposed to go like 500 kilometers east to the Mirage Outfitters. But they called and redirected our flight saying that actually the caribou were over here. Mm-hmm. And this is before they did the shutdown of the caribou hunts. And so we, we flew into there. This is the George River herd. You went yeah, in yeah, exactly like, the, the area that I'm talking about that I was, yeah, yeah. So the story goes, we were going for five days to do this hunt. We arrive in Radisson in the airport, which felt like a very small airport, but an airport, you know, like security wise. Yeah. And our guides show up. We're like, 
and we're guys. We're 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 ten guys. I'm with my friend. Uh, two, we're four of us. My friend and two other people. And the guides come in and go, "Get ready. We're the herd's not far from here. The skidoo's are ready outside of the airport. Load your guns. We're going." And we're, it was kind of weird being in an airport with all security things. We're like loading up guns in the airport. <laughs> I'm like, are we allowed to do it? Like, it just felt wrong, you know, in this day and age. <laughs> Even though it's a small airport, it's still an airport, you know? So we're walking around all dressed and we get on our skidoos. We, we go off. And here was the bad side of this hunt was the guy, first of all, said, okay, we work hard. Here's how the tips work, okay? You know, we expect, you know, 50 bucks for getting your caribou, 50 bucks for the guy. Mm-hmm. So it was just like so weird, you know, we just show. So we go out, we drive, literally, we have our caribou hunt done within two hours. Wow. The plane left, and there we were, and we had to drive 500 kilometers to the Mirage Outfitters. You know, by the time everyone sort of recongregated, it was like 10 at night, and then we loaded up the caribou on trailers in the back, crammed into a van and drove across the Taiga Road mm-hmm. for, I think it was like 10-hour ride. Like, we had our fuel tanks with us. and Anyway, we got there crazy, you know, whatever hour, you know, four or five in the morning. We hadn't eaten. We had Joe Louis. I don't know if you know, you know, he's in the van. That was our meal. We get there, sleep, and then it was like breakfast and I'm saying like what are we going to do so we didn't hang out with the other guys anymore the four guys one of the guys was a northern guide he wasn't indigenous but he was cool and you know like he he knew the land and we we got ourselves some skidoos and we would go off all day hmm. and go hunting um lagoped which are parmigan the little white oh. yeah. and we would go off for miles and all day and, and sorry, I'm sharing this story. This is not, I shouldn't be doing all this talking. But anyway, it, it was so beautiful. Like it was so empty. And, and at one point we were so far off. And with my friend, we kind of went off and did our own thing. And we made a, a little fire. We found some branches, made a little fire. And he goes, it was the craziest thing. And he goes, I bet you where we are right now, no other human being has ever been. Okay. And I'm not shitting you, okay? He said that. And we looked over, and probably 200 yards away, there was a Cree Indian, like there. And I was like, dude, you're so wrong. <laughs> I, was gonna, I was gonna say, I, I, I may beg to differ. Yeah, I, I know. And I just literally had. I understand the feeling. I understand the feeling. And I was like, because I was kind of like, yeah, dude, like we're in the middle of nowhere. And then looked over. 200 yards a year. And the guy just gave us a wave. And I was like, that's so weird, man. That's how wrong we are. But it was such a beautiful moment. We didn't talk. He just gave a wave and went on. Yeah. And, and sorry. So that was a very long story, but I. No, it's, it's, I'm glad you shared it. And, and, and there's, there are all kinds of weird things when you start to, to, uh, when, when you start to try to, to, to mesh uh, capitalism with a, with a, <laughs> with a traditional lifestyle for sure. But, but, but you know what, like, it makes me think like not everybody has that opportunity that to, to have that experience that you, that you had, but, but it does make me think, you, you know, 
how important the land is to uh, to to everyone, and not 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 just Indigenous folks, but but to everyone. And 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 I really do think that that particularly for, for folks that live in cities, which is you know eighty five percent of Canadians, yeah. uh, you know that it is it is so essential that we connect with nature for for our mental health and for our emotional health and and you know city planners are only just beginning to realize that and we're seeing it during the pandemic right to bring this thing whole thing full circle you know we're forced outdoors and what we're realizing is that some cities have done a way better job of providing outdoor common space than others i mean I went to a park in Toronto one evening uh, this summer to have a socially distanced visit with some folks. The park was full in in a really healthy COVID yeah. way. You know, everybody was was distancing, but people were sitting out and on their blankets and having a glass of wine, and which may be a more common thing in Montreal, perhaps. <laughs> but no, in, no, in, I don't in think uptight, they do that. In, in, in uptight Toronto, this is a bit unusual. Uh, but but you know, people need. To connect with the outdoors and there have been studies done medical studies proper medical studies peer-reviewed that show that you know if a child spends a half an hour outside in a park uh you know that they're going to focus better on their studies for example you know add students students who are yeah. classified as having attention deficit disorder when they get connected to nature for a short period of time all of a sudden they're 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 a lot more focused and, and Canadians like to think that we're that country, you know, where we go off to the cottage, you know, where, where we enjoy the great outdoors, you know, we, we, that, that kind of iconic imagery is, is, is very much part of the, the Canadian identity. But the reality is, is that we, a lot of us don't anymore. We, we, we don't, our, our, our connections with nature are, are really limited and, and, um, and, and, it, and it hurts us. And to be honest, like, and it's not to be sort of macho, but, you know, going to Muskoka mm-hmm. versus, you know, when you're up in, in like where I went in Northern Quebec, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a totally different vibe. Like it is, it mm-hmm. is far. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. but if you're from there, it's not far. But when you're from here, you're like, mm-hmm. that's far. I mean, I have this one of these things I like doing. I'm a big Google map. Dude, and I like zeroing in on areas and going like, I wonder what it is and to live here. And I, I remember years ago, uh, we I had the opportunity to fly with my family. Uh, we went to uh, Iceland and I couldn't sleep. I was all excited. And I, all night I, and we're flying over like, you know, flying up and I, you'd see lights like in upper Labrador and you're like, who, who are, who's living there? How do they get there? Mm-hmm. And so I, I Google map into these places going like, what are these places? These these what we down here in the south call outposts but you know we don't have exposure to that and i sometimes wonder if it you know we like should we force like a national program to 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 go north and or to to go discover uh, these communities or i mean probably be yeah, I don't know how Northerners would feel yeah, about that's that. That's the thing. But, but, you know? uh, no, the the spirit is is important, and and in terms of, uh, particularly for youth, uh, I, you know the the whole uh, idea behind Katimovic. Yeah, and having uh, you know an exchange for youth where they get to explore their own country, where they don't have to go backpacking across yeah. Europe, but they actually get an opportunity to explore this massive country, which we have a really hard time uh, keeping connected because it is 
this this massive place that that is held together uh you know despite many of its <laughs> many of its problems from inception uh, I'll I'll say uh but but you know um there are times that I, that I wish that that indigenous uh folks um had more opportunity non-indigenous folks had more opportunities to to have the kind of encounter that you had with with uh, with a hunter uh, up in James Bay it's not even scratching the surface it was so fleeting like not enough do you know sure sure but but you know what it tells you something and I and I don't think enough Canadians have had that opportunity let me ask you so you were talking about Canada like stitching and holding together I would say in some ways cross Canada checkup is like one of the things that holds the country together. <laughs> it's a cross country check. Yeah, is I mean like, the, the show is older than me. It's it's uh, you know it's it's fifty five years old this year, and you know it's for those who don't know it, it's a it's, it's the only Canadian national phone in show uh, that started up during the healthcare debate about whether or not you know Canada should have universal healthcare. Like and, it was founded and, for that. I mean, there was this big kind of project proposal, and and. People said, "You gosh, you know, uh, Canadians should have their chance to weigh in," and and so that's how that's how cross country checkup started. And and I and I'll inflate my role in it uh, for 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 obvious reasons. Uh, but but I do feel like it is uh, uh, one of the the few opportunities that 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 Canadians have to to hear and listen to each other, and and that's really important in this day and age of social media. You know, there was the previous host had been had been at the mic for over twenty years, uh, and um, you know when when he left, uh, when Rex Murphy left, he was there it, for twenty there, years. There some, on yeah, oh yeah, there'd been some discussion, uh, you know, about perhaps it's time for for this phone in show to to be taken off the airwaves because it was created so that Canadians could express their opinions. Well, Canadians express their opinions you know, constantly now uh, on social media. So why do we need this two hour radio slot? But I do think there's something really important and very different from the conversation that happens on the air and cross country checkup uh, than what happens on Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or, or anywhere else uh, is that people get to hear one another uh, and listen to one another and, and listen to voices that are not necessarily in their, their filter bubble. Yeah. Yeah. The, there's no algorithm going on to there's no yeah, algorithm yeah. going on there is i mean we have screeners yeah. we we don't let the the yeah the whack yeah, crazy yeah. loonies of both sides of the political <laughs> spectrum get on the air or we try not to uh so we do have it, there is you know it's it's mediated but 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 thinly mediated for journalistic purposes um and and i i know that there are people that are throwing their uh their lunch at, at the radio, listening to some of the people that they hear on the air. But I think that that's important because they need to recognize that this country is incredibly diverse and there are a lot of different viewpoints and, and not everybody agrees. Uh, and, and that's sometimes hard to do in social media. Uh, you know, mea culpa. I, I, the algorithm works pretty well. It, it shows me the things that I want to see on a fairly daily basis. Yeah, actually, the last time I really listened to it a lot was in uh, when I was in university. Sundays, you know, making dinner in the you know in the apartment, it was just like I don't know, it was a thing to do, and 
and then recently, in recent years, I've been re-listening to it because usually that's when I'm driving my son to a hockey practice and stuck somewhere. Yep. There's traffic now on Sundays, so you're you might as well listen to the radio. And it's like, no, no, let's listen to music. I'm like, we're always listening to music. Now we're gonna hear and listen to Canada. Yeah, my buddy yep, Duncan. <laughs> Yeah, until that guy comes on on the radio, and then you're like, "Whoa, oh my god, I can't listen yeah, to that." That guy, jeez. But it, talking about why they won't wear a face. <laughs> what about so? What's it like to be in that seat to host that? It's a privilege. I, I see it that way. Uh, I feel very lucky to be a journalist and to have uh, people who want to share their stories with me. Uh, that I get to listen and, and ask questions. Uh, I've, I've always seen my job as a privilege. Um, and, and the fact that I uh, get to do that and, and share those conversations with, with a, a pretty broad swath of Canadians, uh, I, feel, I feel lucky. Um, it's also a challenge in the sense that um, I bring what I would call some of my, my Indigenous cultural values to the way I host the program in the sense that I uh, try to be very respectful. Uh, this isn't, this isn't kind of an AM morning shock jock kind of, uh, approach to, to the conversation where I'm trying to, uh, piss people off or, or get into fights with people or, uh, humiliate or denigrate anybody. It's quite the opposite. Um, you know, I am. I want to hear people's points of view, and I make fun of of, of you know uh, hearing somebody on the radio talk about why they're not wearing masks. I think anybody that has looked at the latest research with regard to to COVID transmission understands that that's what uh, that's what a large uh, group of of scientists and and medical. Uh, medical folks are telling us now is is it helps uh, you know the proper but yeah. it helps it helps yeah right right but but that said i want to understand when i'm talking with someone on the air about why they don't wear a face mask uh i want to understand why you know wh where they where they're getting their information i want to understand what's motivating what, what are their fears so that other uh, you know to get to the root of that uh, rather than 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 trying to to get in a fight with that person, I want I want my conversation to help other Canadians learn that there are these opinions out there and that and 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 why their fellow Canadians feel the way they do. Do you ever? No, but let's be honest. Do you like? Do I have to bite my tongue? Yeah, <laughs> that's what everybody asks me. Do I have to bite my tongue? No, because I. Again, this isn't about me and yeah, my yeah. opinions. It's 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 a show. It's and and there are times when I ha I have to scratch my head and say, okay, uh, you know, I'm I'm not following your logic. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's it's about, as I said, journalistically, it's about getting into that deeper the whys of a story as opposed to just the what's. So, would you say when you do a show like that, you get a pulse of the country? Yes, I think so. Every week, the callers surprise me. Thing, uh, you know, I mean, it's not it's not scientific by any stretch sense of the the imagination, and and I, I, it is important to recognize that that it is curated. I mean, I mean, we we have journalistic objectives in terms of balance and fairness, so it's not a scientific poll by any stretch of the imagination. But but I'm we're never sure 
I mean, the callers take the, the, the we throw this question out there. Is it safe to uh, let your kids go trick-or-treating uh, during COVID, uh, during a pandemic? We throw that general question out. We're never quite sure where that conversation is going to go. I'll give you another example. Uh, you know, uh, should there be a prohibition on what kids wear uh, in terms of their costumes uh, at Halloween? When we did that show, my goodness, uh, I was quite shocked uh, at the at the conversation yeah. that ensued on the air uh, during that program. Because did you think it you know, was going to be actually a pretty mild topic? More. I thought it would be a little mild, but but actually, it ended up being you know it, it ended up being one of the more engaging shows about racism that that we have that I ever have hosted. Because in the one hand, it was just about Halloween costumes. We weren't you know we weren't asking a question about Black Lives Matter and police brutality, for example. <laughs> uh, we were asking about Halloween costumes, seemingly innocuous, but um, you know. When we we had that conversation, uh, a lot of viewpoints uh, came out about, uh, and a lot of privilege came out. Frankly, uh, that that people may not feel that they can reveal when they're when they're talking about something as as grave as as uh, as, as police deaths. The other end of the spectrum of serious. Do you know what the number one costume theme is this year? I would guess it's a healthcare worker. No, dude, that that would be like <laughs> a responsible costume. It's apparently fly on head. Oh yeah. no way! That's very yeah, good. So that's very good. So I want to get back to something. So we, I guess, we can't talk mojo without talking about some hard shit. Okay, so you know. This spring, summer, and you mentioned, you know, Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, uh, it, it, things got really intense. And obviously, a lot of conversation in Canada, uh, a lot of conversation in my agency, with colleagues, with friends. Uh, you know, I kind of feel Canada Scar is much more a relationship with Indigenous communities. Um, not, not tr- you know, what's worse, whatever, but I, I believe that's our scar that we never really dealt with. You know, when you look at the, the, and you know this way better than I do, you know, the data, the poverty, the suicide, incarceration amongst the Indigenous populations in Canada, is just, it's off the charts in terms of ratios. Where does the Indigenous community, you know, where do, where do they go from here? Like, are things getting better? Are things worse? Uh, that's a really good question, Thane, and it depends on who you ask. Like it, like it depends. You know, if if you were to ask uh, a, a young uh, indigenous uh, hip hop artist in downtown Vancouver, uh, you know where they feel their life is going, they may be full of nothing but but optimism and. And uh, and revolution, and uh, you know, all kinds of of, of 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 power. If you talk with a fourteen-year-old uh, in on the northern Saskatchewan reserve, uh, where you know there's there's not proper drinking water, 
uh, and and the schooling is is frankly abject, then then they're going to have a very different answer. And and I think I mean you know I I, I think that's part of the the challenge and the concern is is we don't want to have another lost generation, you know, because there've been there've been too many. Um, we don't we, we can't afford that any longer. Um, and so, I mean, me me personally. I see incredible hope. I see incredible hope when, when I meet young children today. When I see the, the the indigenous kids that are hanging out with my uh, my son uh, when he was a camp uh, counselor at an indigenous camp this summer, an online camp for for in, indigenous youth in the city. Uh, when I uh, meet the folks that are involved in the indigenous theater productions that my daughter is involved in as a costume designer and, and who are creating uh, and sharing new indigenous narratives uh, with Canadians on the stage. You know, I, I'm, I'm filled with incredible hope. You know, there, there are indigenous kids out there who are engaging in, in things that, that their grandparents only dreamed of in terms of, of their career pursuits or their artistic pursuits or their, or picking up the language or, 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 but, but you, you, you cannot overlook the fact uh, that there has, is an incredible amount of trauma that has, that, that indigenous people have experienced uh, over the past 150 years that is layered intergenerationally within our families that has created a, an awful lot of hardship and continues to, and it will take a long time for people to get over that, whether it is 60 scoop, whether it is sexual abuse, whether it is incarceration, you know, it, it just residential schools, it just goes on and on the amount of trauma that our peoples have experienced being separated from the land, you know, um, and, and that doesn't just turn around overnight. It's as simple as, you know, trying to rebuild the bonds between our, our, our families, trying to, to create good, strong, loving relationships. There are a lot of people, Indigenous people in this country, who did not hear the words, I love you, for long periods of time throughout their their childhood and their and their adulthood and that has a huge impact on them as who they are today the kinds of, of romantic bonds that they can form the kinds of work relationships that they can form so so there's a lot of work that our people need to do to 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 reach as we're reaching out for self-determination as, as individuals and as peoples, that's not going to change overnight. And so you, I think you were asking me, you know, where are things going? Yeah, I'm incredibly hopeful because for all of the talent that I see and all of the, all of the love that I see now being expressed. Um, but, but it's, it could go the other way. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes we talk about the, the tsunami, you know, there, the, Indigenous folks, we we uh, we have more children than a lot of other Canadians are having right now. You know, we we like to be surrounded by our children, and we have more kids. And you know, if if the dropout rates continue at the same rate that they are, then we're going to lose another generation, mm -hmm. and and there'll be more another uh, generation of kids that are going to be pipelining straight to prison 
So, I mean, I, and there's no like silver bullet of a solution here, but I mean, what could Canada do to, you know, maybe inject more mojo back into this, the indigenous story and our connection to indigenous people? Like, um, there are lots of things. There are lots of things that can be done, but the, but the simple thing is understand that self-determination for indigenous people, if you're actually going to, uh, to fully embody, to fully embrace the, the United ne- uh, Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, uh, that, that is going to result in a shift in power in this country. <laughs> it has to. If if treaty, if the treaties uh, are are going to be the spirit of the treaties and the relationship that that those peoples who sign treaties uh, have with with Canadians, if if the spirit of those documents is going to be breathed life into again, it has to result in a shift in power. At the moment. There, there, it is profoundly unbalanced, imbalanced, excuse me. Um, we don't judge you know, how the, people say things. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the Indian Act and everything that surrounds the Indian Act was set up to turn indigenous people into wards of the state so that they could be moved aside uh, and dispossessed of their land. That's the, that's the simple version of Canadian history mm-hmm. with regard to Indigenous peoples, which ignores the earlier version that uh, my ancestors envisioned, which was a sharing relationship with the newcomers that was uh, that was uh, cast into a contract, if you will. Uh, I use that term simply simply. But, but was cast into uh, a spiritual and sacred understanding that this was how we're going to proceed, which are the, which are the treaties and, and the wampum belts and, and all of these kinds of, of understandings that my ancestors had about what that relationship was going to look like moving forward. It's very different than what it evolved into. So you asked me what's going to uh, – how – how the mojo will be rediscovered between uh, Canada and, and, and relationship with indigenous peoples. It's got to be that Canadians understand that there's going to be a period of, of uncomfortable uh, shift in power mm-hmm. with regard to indigenous people beginning to exercise their voice when it comes uh, to, uh, you know, the way that, that, resources are developed in land uh, when it comes to um, you know signs on buildings yeah. <laughs> street street signs right the, the, those kinds of, of there are Canadians who feel very uncomfortable when when they suggest that that the name of, of Sir John a McDonald should be taken off of a law school but that uh, it's gonna get. It's gonna be uncomfortable. Thing. It's got It is. You, we gotta got feel to the be. discomfort to know. It's got yeah. to be. If it, if it, and if the, if we don't move through that, 
then the relationship isn't going to change. It's really interesting. I had the, um, I don't know if you've read the book, uh, Samuel de Champlain's Dreams. I haven't read it yet. Very interesting read of how, you know, just the perspective of Champlain and his arrival into the, the new world and, and what I think was a sincere and legitimate spirit of partnership and, and collaboration that got lost along the way. And I, I sometimes wonder, mm. like, if he's around now, he'd be so pissed. Like, mm. the deal was broken. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. You know, obviously, the, he had his, you know, certain world views, which were not always, I don't know, fair. But he seemed to have a pretty different viewpoint than what actually played out in history. And, yep. Yep. and uh, But I hear you. I think... If we're we're gonna have to feel that change, it can't just be the same cycle. Yes, I'll go back to to something as innocuous as uh, statues and street yeah. signs. You know, it, like like the erasure of indigenous peoples from the land, and this goes back to what I'm learning about language, right? Like like you know the 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 erasure of indigenous place names, for example. When you start to learn that, for example, that Mississauga, Oshawa, Etobicoke, uh, all of these are, are, are based on an indigenous language, you begin to realize how deeply woven into the history of this country. Uh, or even our country name. Canada, <laughs> you know, Ottawa. We don't even acknowledge that. No, it's not. It's not acknowledged, and 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 it needs to be. It needs to be understood, so that so that we can go back to that spirit of of, of partnership that 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 you mentioned earlier. I could spend hours, dude. I would love to just hang out in real life, and hmm. I mean, you wouldn't have time because you're doing be nice. fellowship and stuff. You yeah. you're up there in your <laughs> dorm, <laughs> but uh, we have this thing we call it the rabbit hole five. Okay. It used to be the rapid five, but it yep. never ended up being fast because we go down these rabbit okay. holes. <laughs> yes. So we call it the rabbit hole five. So I've got to try to be fast. No, or, or because not. it just makes it more interesting to – maybe it'll be fast. Okay. Maybe right. it won't. We, we gave up on the speed factor. Okay. Uh, so here's a question for you. There's five of them. So of notable U of T community, okay, here's the first question. And, and I just grabbed some names. Margaret Atwood, Malcolm Gladwell, Northrop Fry, Jordan Peterson. Who would you choose to spend a month trap lining with? Uh, of that, of those four? Yeah. Sorry. Uh, ah, it, it'd have to be... So Northrop Fry for for all kinds of obvious reasons, uh, you know, because of his towering intellect and, and, and my... Uh, Role as it was Northrop Fry, uh, Margaret, Margaret Atwood. Atwood, Malcolm Gladwell, Malcolm Northrop Gladwell. Fry, Jordan Peterson. Yeah, okay, so so I, I, I'm hanging out with Peggy would be great. That, that would be my choice for sure. You're on like a Peggy basis with Margaret yes. Atwood. I saw the back of her head at the Giller Awards last year. I was sitting, uh, I was seated, okay. like you know, uh, I've never interviewed her, I'd, 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 I'd like to at some point. Uh, I just find her to be uh, delightful. Yeah. Uh, so whip smart, uh, you know, I, I, um, and, and so 
caustic. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and I would, but she's also a bird watcher. I know that. And and so I think being out on the land she might with, be a good hunter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she might be. Uh, <laughs> I cannot even begin to imagine how. Uh, what it would be like to hang out with Jordan Peterson for a month. He actually might be a good hunter. That's a thing. Yeah? <laughs> he likes his meat, apparently. So. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, it's funny as you mentioned, I, I suspect you'd say Northrop Fry, like you sort of went there first. But yeah, I was that, was my, that was my first reaction. That was your king's in you. That was your king's college in you. I, yeah? I, heard, I hear that he, was, he, he wasn't the most engaging lecturer, uh, you know, uh, despite his towering intellect. Might get a little boring. Yeah, you know? I just think, I think, I think uh, Margaret would be. He'd be like Blake. Let's talk about Blake again. <laughs> Uh, by the way, Malcolm Gladwell is a really good runner, so that might be helpful. Okay. I don't know. I'm just – I get very pragmatic about it. You're like, who do I want to hang and talk with? I'm like, who's going to actually succeed in the trap lining here? Okay, second question. <laughs> Governor General or Prime Minister or Ambassador to the UN, which one are you going to be? Oh, none. I, uh, Come on, dude! I'm like I'm the one that's outing you here. Uh, oh, certainly not prime minister. I can tell you that. Uh, um, I I could not be a politician. Uh, kissing babies is just like I would have a really difficult time. Yeah. <laughs> well, with COVID, well, you don't well, have to, right? Well, so you're... <laughs> they they oh, I've seen them right. at work. I've seen politicians at work and. The kind of adrenaline that they run on when they're in the middle of a campaign is just bizarre. Yeah. I think it would be lovely to have uh, an Indigenous Governor General uh, because uh, so much of our uh, relationship uh, has been based on on, on that, that historic relationship with the Crown and the British Crown in particular. And I just think it would be lovely to, to, to see an, uh, an Indigenous Governor General in this country. Um, I'm with you, man. You know, uh, UN, uh, gosh, you know, uh, <laughs> I've heard horror stories about the bureaucracy at the UN. I don't know if I could handle being an envoy. So there, isn't this fun? <laughs> this is now in the world domain. Okay, future governor general. Uh, but the only no, problem with being this. governor general is you, you're not actually allowed to really say anything, you no, know, yeah. deep down. That's the problem. Uh, <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, you cut a lot of ribbons. Yeah. Let's move it on. Number three, if you had to take one book from your foundation year, you know, reading list to the island, which one do you take? It's the only book forever. Uh, there are a lot of choices there. So I'll, I'll just throw the ones that leapt out to mind. Um, I would definitely think about taking Machiavelli's The Prince. Uh, although I don't, I don't subscribe uh, to to <laughs> to to the mercenary way that he <laughs> envisioned, uh, you know, becoming a leader. I think there were all kinds of marvelous uh, things to ponder about how to uh, how to <laughs> how to, frankly, manipulate and understand uh, human psychology. 
which would be very helpful in terms of, of trying to get off the island. Uh, <laughs> uh, You're already gone to the, like, I'm working to get off the island. I need a tool. Uh, I don't want to yeah. be that guy. I want to be the guy that gets off the island. And I think, yeah. I think the prince would probably help in that regard. Uh, the, the book that I think that would probably provide the most thought, although I don't, uh, would be Dante's Inferno. Uh, there are so many levels to, to, uh, you know, uh, yeah, uh, literally, <laughs> literally, uh, to that, to that particular work that I think you could read that over and over and over again and, and still have lots of different, um, engaging thoughts. It's so happy you chose that. Obviously when I, you know, the questions there, I was like, what, what would it be for me? And it was, it was definitely, uh, Dante's Inferno. Mm. It's a very colorful, dark Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> uh, number four on the rabbit hole five, and hopefully by not saying rabbit hole, I influence okay. your answer here. Uh, if you could be reborn as any animal, what animal would you choose? Uh, I am uh, I am wolf clan. So, so as a good uh, member of the wolf clan, I should respond wolf. Uh, I, I have a soft spot for otters as well. Uh, Otters, the otter. yeah, otters. You know, just being an otter just seems so like so much fun. Like you know, they just they they slip and slide and and uh, and I, I love fishing. And so uh, you know, being an otter and uh, just sitting on my you know floating on my back and and uh, eating some fish. I mean, that's that sounds like a pretty good life to me. As, as, sounds like a pretty <laughs> as long as there's no leg hold traps kicking around. Yeah. <laughs> And the last question here, and this is uh, my my sort of selfish path to get advice for my own eldest son. What would you give to yourself, your own 16-year-old self? Duncan, who's 16 again, what advice would you give? Oh, my goodness. This is a rabbit hole question, Thane. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no easy answer to that. I was an awkward 16 year old i was a nerd and and all teen i mean most teenagers almost all teenagers are awkward it's a ter I, it's a difficult period in your life it, it's it's simple it, it's simple to say it does get it does get better yeah. <laughs> it does but it does uh and and um you know for me uh, the the advice I would have given to myself as a sixteen year old that's what that's what you're asking right yeah uh, is is that uh, reading books is going to serve you well that's good I like that because I because I because I, I felt extremely uh, conscious of of that as a as a as a teenager uh, that that I liked to read you were a reader I was you a were reader. a reader I was a, I was a, a deep uh, okay. reader. Um, and, and I loved books. I was a nerd, you know, and, and nerds don't necessarily fare well in high school, right? Uh, so How is it you were a nerd, dude? Maybe because we were all nerds at King's. You did not come across as a nerd. Yeah, we were, we were kind of – you just asked me what we would – what I, you know, we're talking about Dante and, 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 <laughs> and Machiavelli, Machiavelli in our first year of university. I mean, yeah, we were nerds, man. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, but you were the you know, on the cool side of this nerd <laughs> spectrum, man. 
So that's interesting. Great advice. I'm going to get that one to my son because uh, he's actually a great reader, but he's moving away from it because it's almost like it's maybe not cool. Yeah, yeah well, and, and this is the thing. The nerds inherit the earth. That's, that's, uh, that's what you don't realize until, uh, until you're in your mid-20s. Or you become a trillionaire yeah. type. <laughs> so that's awesome. Look, man, thanks Thanks so much. I know you're uh, got a lot going on. I appreciate. No one can see this, but you got your CBC hat <laughs> on. Still, one probably one of the coolest logos out it there. Is. And as being in a creative firm, I always appreciate a good logo. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, really insightful. Yep. And uh, and maybe if the world gets a bit more normal again, and if I can use your email address, I'll email you. And when I'm in Toronto and we could hang for, and and we could actually uh, do this in IRL and, and yes, uh, over a awesome. Thank you, sir. Big thanks to Chris Fallon playing us out here. And remember, slam the like buttons, slam and hit them up with the five stars. Right, rock on. Mm-hmm.